Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vaseem Akhtar. Today I'm joined by Richard Alice, Professor of Astrophysics at University College London and a renowned observational astronomer who has made many discoveries about the nature and evolution of the universe. Today we are going to discuss his new book, When Galaxies Were Born, The Quest for Cosmic Dawn. Richard, thank you very much for joining me and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. The book tells the story of finding and studying ever more distant and hence earlier galaxies. You say that the idea of the book emerged when a professional photographer asked you to arrange a tour of large telescopes uh, for an exhibition he wanted to assemble. Talk us through that, how the idea of this book emerged. Yes. Well, my book describes, uh, as you say, the adventure to trace the history of galaxies all the way back to when they first emerged from darkness. It's uh, it's a story that follows the development of ever larger telescopes, both on the ground and in space. And as an observational astronomer um, who's witnessed this progress, the aim of the book is to provide an insider's view of how this progress occurred, how the discoveries were made, and, uh, you know, introducing many of the colorful characters. You know, astronomers are interesting people. Um, observing the night sky from a remote mountain top is a source of inspiration. And my book is well illustrated. So um, the project, as you indicate, began with a, a, a professional photographer who is a family friend. And he approached me and he said, um, I want to do an exhibition of photographs of observatories. You've, you've observed many of them. Could you get me access to them? And, uh, and I thought this would be a, a wonderful travel log for me to go back to all the telescopes I'd use. So I said yes. And as a result of this, we produced two books, um, a photographic book, which is based on his exhibition, uh, which was in Venice, um, at the BNL, and uh, my own book, which uses many of his photographs to illustrate the progress in science in my area of studying early galaxies over, well, you know, I'm an old man, 40 to 50 years. This nicely brings us to my next question. You have a fantastic career spanning more than 40 years. You have worked with many academic institutions, worked at many telescopes. In the book, you talk about technical breakthroughs uh, that we will discuss in a few moments. But uh, you also discuss the human aspects of conducting research. You talk about the teams, how the teams are formed, how the teams work together, and then how rivalries emerge and how we manage those rivalries. So my question is, usually a book written by a researcher like you would focus on research, research activities, and the findings and the discoveries, why you decided to include the human aspects of conducting research? Well, I wanted to bring the adventure to the public. You know, the public is interested, obviously, in the discoveries and what they mean. Um, but this is not an academic book. This is a book for the general reader. And, you know, I believe, as I still do today, that astronomy is exciting. And I want to convey the excitement and the, the disappointments and the adventure of what it's like to be a professional astronomer to an average person who has, you know, hopefully at least some interest in looking at the night sky and wondering, well, you know, what does an astronomer really do? And, you know, what's it like to go to a telescope and make these observations? So for example, in the book, I describe the excitement and the joy of making a discovery. Um, it, you know, it's one of these, it doesn't happen every, you know, every time I go to a telescope, but it could be that we discover the most distant known object or we verify a theory that, you know, is now very clearly demonstrated by the observational data. But it's a joy to do that in real time, maybe with a, with a student uh, who feels particularly that that moment in his or her life is encapsulated in that moment. So we would, 
you know, hug each other at the telescope. We'd uh, open a bottle of champagne at dawn. We'd telephone our families and say what a wonderful discovery we've made. You know, but those are the ups. There are, of course, the downs. The downs are that professional astronomers are allocated scheduled nights on telescopes, regardless of the weather. And if the weather is uncooperative, if it's cloudy, or even worse, if the instrument doesn't work, you know, if there's some technical hitch, uh, we're all aware of the modern world where things don't quite go technically correct. Um, then, of course, it's a travesty because you've flown all the way to Chile or Hawaii or the Canary Islands. Uh, maybe the student's thesis is on the, on the, on the blocks and uh, there's big disappointment. So it's not for the faint hearted. You know, one has to be um, a pragmatist and an optimist. Um, and uh, it's character building. So I wanted to convey that excitement of the subject uh, to the reader, the general reader. It's, uh, I'm still enthralled by it, even now after nearly a thousand nights on large telescopes during my career, I'm still nervous and excited as I enter the telescope, wondering what will happen each night that I'm observing. Observational astronomy requires telescopes, and there are always efforts going on to build larger and larger telescopes. And terminology is also very interesting. Large telescopes, very large telescopes, extremely large telescopes, and then overwhelmingly large telescopes. How do you see this journey, this quest for building bigger and bigger telescopes? Well, it's like everything in science, bigger is better, better, bigger is more powerful. Uh, the power of a telescope is to collect faint light from distant objects. That's why we build telescopes. And the, the power of a telescope, the efficiency of the telescope, scales as the area of the mirror that collects the light from the night sky. So, you know, Galileo's telescope was very, very modest. And, you know, William Herschel built bigger telescopes in the 19th century and late 18th century. And then in the 20th century came along a, a truly innovative entrepreneur, George Ellery Hale in, in America, who once said, every moment the, the radiation from the sky is falling on the Earth's surface, and all we can do is gather the light from a mirror that's 100 inches across. In other words, he even envisaged that the Earth itself could be the collecting area for a big future telescope. So we've now gone from George Ellery Hale's telescope. The first one was 60 inches across, uh, the famous one that many people will have heard, the Mount Palomar telescope, you know, is 200 inches across. And now the, the most, uh, the largest telescope in the world is in the Canary Islands and its mirror is 10 meters across. Okay, so that's 400 inches across for those who want to use British units. And we're now planning telescopes that are three times larger in diameter. So that's 1,200 inches across. So this is the European extremely large telescope. You're, you're, just to jo make a joke here, um, Wasim, the overwhelmingly large telescope was going to be 100 meters across. So that would be 20 times larger than the Palomar telescopes. But sadly, it was considered impractical, at least at this moment in time. So we've gone from overwhelmingly large back down to extremely large, which is, you know, good enough, I think. And large telescopes are usually built by research groups scattered around the world. And then deciding that who builds which part of the telescope, who gets how much time for observation. So perhaps you were right in talking about the human aspects of this research because there are many teams scattered across the globe and bringing them together and achieving effective collaboration must be a non-technical and non-scientific challenge. That's right. 
a big telescope nowadays is, you know, um, you know, the current projects that are being considered are over a billion dollars. And uh, so it requires management. This is not a job for a professor. It's a job for what we call a project manager. Somebody, you know, of the stature of a CEO of a company who can uh, enthuse, consider the financial aspects, uh, enthuse the team to do for many areas, technical team, financial team, human resources, the astronomers, of course. So it's an example, as Fred Hoyle, a very famous astronomer, said, it's an example of what our civilization does very well. You have to assemble a mirror. It has to be, the surface of the mirror has to be polished to the fraction of the width of the human hair. It has to be assembled on a remote mountaintop. The logistics of carrying all this equipment to uh, the summit of a mountain in Hawaii or Chile or in China is logistically challenging. And then, of course, once the telescope is there, it has to be operated by a team of engineers. Uh, The astronomers have to be, uh, you know, uh, trained in using it. Uh, It has to be well documented. It's It's an enormous effort. Typically, these modern big telescopes Uh, involve partnerships between several thousand people. And even when they're built, they're managed by an observatory staff of between 100 and 200 people. So this is is a far cry from Galileo, you know, going into his back garden and looking at the moons of Jupiter. This is a completely different scale. Now we have these space telescopes. How space telescopes are contributing towards observational astronomy? So it's been a dream since the 1940s to put a telescope in space. Um, Now, the average listener will think, well, the obvious advantage is to get above the clouds and avoid, you know, the weather uh, that is the bane of the astronomer's life. And that's true. Of course, it's always clear in space. But the Earth's atmosphere has many deleterious effects. Firstly, uh, it absorbs, fortunately for us, ultraviolet radiation from the sun, and it also only transmits some of the infrared radiation. And if you can get above the Earth's atmosphere, you get a bigger uh, range of of wavelengths and frequencies of of, uh, light from all kinds of objects. Now, most... um, People will think, well, they look at the night sky with their naked eye and they see, of course, a blue star and a red star and a yellow star. But believe me, that range of color is only a fraction of what the universe is emitting. There are X-ray sources, there are radio sources, there are infrared, ultraviolet, as well as traditional optical sources uh, that we can see with our naked eye. So getting above the Earth's atmosphere gives us the full panoply of everything that the universe is radiating. And then finally, the Earth's atmosphere is not a stationary layer of gas. It is moving. This is, you know, people, we all know that weather creates movement of of air in the atmosphere. This air movement, this turbulence in the Earth's atmosphere fuzzies the light, makes the stars twinkle. And of course, if you can get above the Earth's atmosphere, you get much sharper views. So many people will have seen the glorious pictures from Hubble Space Telescope, which was launched in 1990, which features prominently in my book. And of course, made a huge number of discoveries by many astronomers using Hubble. But now, it's been uh, challenged or complemented by the James Webb Space Telescope, which is a larger version. It's a six and a half meter mirror compared to a two and a half meter mirror. So that's something like six to seven times more powerful than Hubble. And it extends further into the infrared region than Hubble, which is very important for looking at distant objects. 
we'll we'll come back to James Webb Space Telescope in a minute. I just want to ask you this. You just mentioned a few moments ago that ground-based telescopes, there are issues with weather and there are issues with turbulence in in the atmosphere. Mm. But science is fascinating. This engineering solution of adaptive mirrors, mm. the way it fixes atmospheric disturbances, it's amazing. And I was listening to one of your lectures where you showed two images, one ground-based observation made by a telescope without using adaptive mirrors and the next one is using adaptive mirrors and the images are amazingly different the image where we use adaptive mirror is very sharp very clear very crisp so this happened during your career when you were using yeah. these ground based telescopes and there was turbulence and suddenly there is a technology that can remove those turbulence tell us about that that development okay well it's a very interesting story and it just shows the ingenuity uh, of astronomers particularly instrumentation uh, people who work on instruments so you're absolutely right that um, when hubble was launched in 1990 it showed us what we were missing it showed us beautiful sharp images that you can take in space above the earth's atmosphere but you know it's uh, it's a bit like a football match on the other side of the team there are these poor ground based astronomers who can't afford to launch telescopes into space hubble let's put this in context the hubble space telescope cost in in 1990 dollars it cost 2 billion dollars quite apart from the cost of the space shuttle which of course mm. put it into orbit and allowed the astronauts to tweak the you know the instruments on board correct the dreadful distortion that everybody found when it, it you know when it was launched etc cetera, etc cetera. so we can't afford to launch every telescope into space so um very clever people realized that as the light from the night sky comes through the earth's atmosphere um it is it is distorted uh by the um the turbulence in the earth's atmosphere and if for example you shine a laser a powerful laser from the telescope into the upper layers of the earth's atmosphere there is a layer about 80 kilometers up which contains sodium atoms and this laser excites these sodium atoms and makes an artificial star and the if the telescope looks at this artificial star and monitors it very very carefully and very precisely every split second then it can feed that information that contains the twinkling and the blurring of this star into a camera that can correct in real time the distortion of the earth's atmosphere so it took i think it's fair to say it took 5 to 10 years for this to be perfected but starting in about 2000 we started to rival hubble in the image quality with ground based telescopes you're absolutely right for 10 years hubble had the advantage uh but then the ground based telescopes caught up and this is a story of ingenuity if you like uh the engineers when given a challenge uh can create something that is truly new and that's also a theme of my book how the ingenuity of uh, of engineers and technical people can overcome challenges now in the case of hubble today Hubble is also an ultraviolet telescope and the ultraviolet radiation uh does not reach the ground uh thankfully because otherwise we'd all be frazzled when we went sunbathing um it is absorbed by the earth's atmosphere and likewise as i said the infrared radiation that James Webb uh is sensitive to also most of it doesn't uh reach the ground or if it does reach the ground it's contaminated by the warmth of the earth's atmosphere so hubble has you know over the years the niche of hubble has shifted in the first decade it was just you know playtime hubble gave us these wonderful sharp images in the optical 
that nobody could reproduce. But over time, the ground-based telescopes have caught up. And the partnership, it's not really a rivalry. I don't think, you know, it's not correct to think of these telescopes as competing with one another. The world doesn't work that way. The astronomers naturally gravitate to what each telescope can do best. And Hubble has been particularly important in faint object astronomy, where in, once you get into space, the night sky is very much darker. Now, you know, it may seem amazing that the night sky isn't completely dark, but believe me, the night sky, even in space, is not completely dark. Um, and, but it's much darker than on the ground. So for the faintest objects, Hubble is very important. And in the ultraviolet, Hubble is very important. Um, and now we have James Webb that opens up the infrared, which is very important for the highest and most, uh, most distant objects. Let us uh, stay with this point that you just made, that how uh, we, we, we solve our problems, how we develop new techniques to improve what we are doing. Gravitational lensing was an idea that was proposed by Einstein that this should happen it was initially mentioned as a, as a theoretical concept that it should happen and then we we found that it was happening and then we started and astronomers started using it in in the observations so gravitational lensing uh, how do practically astronomers use this okay well um firstly what is it um gravitational lensing uh let's you know, give you the the top level um, inspirational statement. Imagine you woke up one day and you found that, you know, you had a tool that you can put on a telescope to make it 10 times more powerful, you know, and you didn't have to write a proposal for money. It was just waiting in space for you to happen, you know, for you to use it. And the answer to this riddle is that um, when you look through a massive uh, object like a cluster of galaxies or um, you know an assembly of objects um, they actually act like an optical lens they can actually focus the light from a distant object and magnify it and even enlarge it so it's a, like a magnifying glass so how does this work well it, it goes as you said back to Einstein in 1917 and Einstein realized that light, well, firstly, gravity. If you think of the Earth going around the sun, you might have wondered, well, how does the Earth know that the sun is there? You know, they're not touching each other. There's not a handshake between the Earth and the sun. And the answer is absolutely bewildering. The reason the Earth knows the sun is there is that the sun stretches space and the earth is moving in shaped space so when the earth goes around the sun it is a bit like water going around the plug hole um it the plug hole is the sun it is shaping the 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 sink bowl if you like in the bathroom and the water going round is the earth orbiting the sun and the Earth knows the sun is there because it's following the only trajectory it can in curved space. So this was the breakthrough. So if you go back to Isaac Newton, he was very, very worried. How did gravity, I mean, of course, he discovered the laws of gravity, became, you know, extraordinarily famous for centuries, even now. But he worried greatly, how did the Earth, how did this gravitational force propagate over distance? And Einstein solved that by realizing that mass distorts space. So once you get the idea that a heavy object stretches space, then and light rays, like the Earth going around the sun, light rays follow that distorted space as well, then you could imagine holding up a massive object and seeing that the light rays from something behind it are focused. And once you can grasp the idea of focusing, then think of a magnifying glass. And then 
you can see that you could magnify a distant object, make it brighter than it would be if you didn't. Now, it doesn't happen everywhere. You have to look through a region of space where this is happening. So it's, yes. not, like, it's not like the whole sky is magnified. It's not like that mm -hmm. at all. You have to look through a region where there's something in the foreground that is distorting space, like a massive cluster of galaxies. Now, why didn't Einstein realize this? Well, he was... Um, he didn't realize that there were these clusters of galaxies out in space. He thought that the likelihood of this being useful was very, very unlikely because two stars very rarely align, you know. Um, uh, but uh, as described in my book, um, um, a Swiss astronomer, Fritz Ricci, realized that this might work and realized that it would magnify distant galaxies and it was beautifully demonstrated in the 80s and ultimately in the 90s with the Hubble Space Telescope. And now it's, it's bread and butter to most astronomers. Uh, we can magnify objects by factors of 20, 50, or even 100. And it's like having a telescope that's 100 times more powerful, but only in these specific directions where we see this bending of light. So you have an additional lens out there placed in the space that can become part of your instruments. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, let us loop back and uh, briefly discuss uh, uh, James Webb Space Telescope. Were you involved uh, in that project? Yeah, yeah. The, oh, so the history is no sooner than Hubble was fixed, and let's just remember for readers that are young, uh, listeners that are uh, fairly young. In 1990, Hubble was launched, but there was a, an embarrassing two to three years where we realized that the mirror wasn't accurately shaped due to a, an unfortunate misunderstanding between the engineers and the astronomers. Uh, but fortunately, with a, because it could be visited by the space shuttle, um, correcting optics uh, was installed in 93, and lo and behold, it became the fabulous telescope that we see today. But no sooner than that, in, in, a, in an illustration of how ambitious American astronomers can be, um, NASA and, uh, and others organized uh, a think tank workshop uh, and a committee um, to consider what came after HST, what came after the Hubble Space Telescope. This committee was called HST and Beyond, and I was at the time at Cambridge University, and I was the only European-based astronomer uh, to be appointed to this committee with about 12 other American astronomers. And at that, at the uh, at, at these meetings in which were of course held in the United States, uh, we debated the science case for a successor to Hubble. And there were two pillars uh, of science that we envisaged in ninety four, ninety five, and then the report of the committee emerged in ninety six. And I'm really pleased that those two pillars of science, all those years ago, I mean you know, over 25 years ago, uh, uh, were correct. And they were firstly looking back to when galaxies were born, hence the theme of my book, uh, which James Webb is certainly capable of doing. And secondly, finding Earth-like planets around nearby stars, which is a separate and equally exciting goal uh, that is being pursued by the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, the telescope itself had a rocky history. Uh, it, it was originally proposed to be a four-meter mirror, so a little bit bigger than Hubble, but not much. Hubble is a 2.5-meter mirror. And we thought it would be about a billion dollars. And um, somebody in NASA, the, the chief scientist of NASA, um, said that we weren't being ambitious enough. And he challenged our committee to consider an eight-meter telescope, twice as powerful um, in area, well, in area, four times bigger, actually, um, than what we proposed, and said he believed we could do it for $500 million. 
And his motto was uh, faster, uh, bigger and cheaper. Uh, But it turned out that the challenges of making a big telescope uh, were too expensive. And the eventual project uh, was descoped to a six and a half meter mirror, which is, as I said, six to seven times more powerful than Hubble. And it cost an astonishing $10 billion. Now, you might say $10 billion is a lot of money for a purely scientific project. And you're absolutely right. And a question I'm often asked is, why should such expenditure be given to something that doesn't actually, you know, affect uh, material life? It doesn't exactly change breakfast. It doesn't uh, feed starving people. It doesn't eliminate diseases, et cetera, et cetera. So let me upfront answer that question. Um, A few years ago, there was a survey in the United States of engineers, medical doctors, scientists, economists, uh, people who work hard to improve life for all of us on the planet, not just the wealthy nations, but, you know, disadvantaged nations, emerging nations, people in poverty, etc. And they were asked, these eminent people were asked, when you were a schoolboy or a schoolgirl, what was it that made you decide uh, to pursue a career in the field that you're now in? And in many cases, the answer was astronomy. The fascination with discovery, uh, the concept of curiosity, the realization that pure science is inspirational uh, and people can dedicate. So these people did not become astronomers, you know, they, they, but they were, their eyes were open when they were young. And that's what astronomy can do. Now, $10 billion is still a lot of money, um, but I think it brings joy and enthusiasm to many people. And of course, NASA has a huge program that advertises uh, the discoveries that James Webb has made. And so I think, you know, as we've seen, it works, which is just such a relief <clears throat> because it is <clears throat> one of the most complicated and ambitious space missions that's ever been launched. And uh, are you excited? Are you happy? Are you relieved after seeing these fascinating images that uh, James Webb Space Telescope is uh, beaming back to us? Oh, definitely. So, of course, I was very nervous on Christmas Day. Um, It didn't spoil my turkey, but, you know, I was, uh, you know, I knew that this was the beginning of a a risky adventure. But um, the preparation by the engineers has been fantastic. And uh, by about March or April of this year, I was confident that things were going well. And then when we saw the final images in July... Um, I was uh, overjoyed. And in fact, let me tell you that actually the performance of the telescope, that is its efficiency and its angular acuity, is actually better uh, than the specification. So I think many thousands of people who worked on it need to be congratulated for a truly astonishing engineering achievement. It really is a marvel, um, you know, even if you're (laughs) worried about the cost. And do you have booked any observational time? Yes. So I'm involved in a number of surveys. Um, There are two aspects to James Webb that make it so special. Uh, One is that um, it has cameras that can image the distant universe at infrared wavelengths, which are sensitive to galaxies that are seen at the extreme distances when the universe was very young. That data has started to arrive in the middle of November. Uh, We're eagerly analyzing it right now. Uh, It is already clear that we are seeing galaxies well beyond the horizon that was possible with Hubble for two reasons. One, it's a more powerful telescope. Secondly, it goes further into the infrared region of the spectrum where the light from distant galaxies is shifted by the expansion of the universe. The second aspect of James Webb is it, um, it can also take spectra, spectra 
that means we can break the light of the galaxy into its um, spectrum with frequency, which has characteristic fingerprints of the chemical composition. Now, the earliest galaxies, when the universe was very young, about two or three percent of its present age, let me pause at this point and say the universe is 13.7 billion years old. So it's about three times older than the Earth, which is 4.6 4 billion years old. So we're looking back 97% of the way back to the beginning, and we're finding galaxies. And we would imagine that the earliest objects have not yet had enough chemical enrichment to produce oxygen, carbon, magnesium, silicon, all of these elements that we see around us today, carbon in the pencils, uh, magnesium in salt, sodium, etc., in salt, the iron in our blood, the calcium in our bones, everything that we see around us wasn't there at this early time. Those elements, those chemical elements are all synthesized in stars. So think about it for a moment. If you go back to the beginning, these stars will not have these elements. They will only have the elements that formed in the very Big Bang, in the beginning of the universe. Hydrogen, the simplest chemical element, and a little bit of helium. There was just enough time in the Big Bang for three minutes, believe it or not, to make a little bit of helium. So the signature of an early galaxy emerging from darkness would be that its stars don't have any chemical elements other than hydrogen and helium. And James Webb has these spectrographs that Hubble didn't, that are powerful enough to test that idea. Now, we're not there yet. So people are finding these early objects, but the spectra have not yet been taken. And it won't be easy. We'll need long exposures. Uh, but it's a very exciting time, um, you know, which my book tries to convey uh, through how we got to this point uh, with James Webb. Yeah, and this nicely brings me to the next set of my questions. Uh, and let us dig deep uh, on some of the scientific work that you have done. Uh, Richard, the universe began with the Big Bang, as you mentioned a few moments ago, about 13.7 billion years ago. Astronomers believe that the first stars and galaxies formed about 200 million years later. So are these 200 million years that we call the dark ages of the universe? Yes. So you might say, you know, at some point the universe was bathed in starlight. It took a while for these hydrogen clouds to collapse under, under their own gravity. And as they collapse, uh, if you've ever, you know, inflated a tire, you know that the tire gets hot when you compress the gas inside the tire. So as the gas cloud collapses, the temperature of the cloud goes up. And if you can get up to a million degrees, which I know many people wouldn't want to experience, then you ignite nuclear fusion, hydrogen nuclei, coalesce, form helium, carbon, magnesium, and release energy. And uh, that's how stars shine. So what happened before that? Well, it was just dark. It was a period of 200 million years where there was hydrogen uh, clouds, but no stars, no, no planets, no galaxies, nothing. And uh, that we call the Dark Ages. And uh, so... You know, well, we will never witness, you know, darkness. So you can't see darkness with a telescope. So the only way we can determine when this happened is to try to witness the beginning, which is almost mm. religious. You know, you think of first light, uh, the universe shining starlight for the first time. And the key thing we need to measure is the chemical composition of the stars because they should be pristine. They shouldn't have had time to form the chemical elements that come later. And that's mm -hmm. 
in you know in my subjects that's the holy grail you know that's that's what everybody is trying to do and we realized that in 1996 we realized that, that this was beyond the scope of hubble hubble space telescope couldn't do this it didn't have the the the, the coverage it didn't have the technical specifications to do this and in you know i'm proud that all that long time ago in 1996 we established this vision of look, building a telescope, which at the time we called the Next Generation Space Telescope. And here we are all those years later, uh, more than 25 years later, and it's the same story. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm confident that we, we're, we're close to seeing it. The subtitle of your book is The Quest for Cosmic Dawn. Uh, I believe this is the time when earliest stars and galaxies started appearing. And you have briefly alluded to this a few moments ago. But I want to bring another concept that you have shared um, uh, on many occasions, that you say that the lumps of dark matter has a role to play in this particular a point in time in our uh, universal history that this was a dark matter that initially attracted hydrogen and then the hydrogen started lumping together and then the whole process of star formation started? Right. So it's a little complicated, but I'll explain it as best I can. So uh, why do, firstly, why do we believe there's dark matter? Um, well, we can measure, there's, there's two answers to this. We can measure the mass in various regions of space through the motions of galaxies in clusters. So, for example, supposing the sun was dark and wasn't shining, then, of course, from the motion of the planets, we would deduce that there's some heavy object at the center of the solar system. So I think people can understand that the kinematics of an object is governed by the gravity of its environment. The earth, the motion of the earth proves that the sun is, is there uh, and, and is very massive. So likewise, in a cluster of galaxies, you can look at the motions of the galaxies in a cluster and you can determine that they're all held together by a total mass. And then you look at the individual galaxies and you add up their masses and it isn't enough. And so people, including the, our hero, Fritz Vicky, decided that there must be dark stuff uh, in the cluster that adds to the mass of the galaxies that is binding the cluster together so that the motions of the individual galaxies can be explained. Likewise, the Milky Way is spinning and the rate at which it spins at different places is inconsistent with how the stars in the Milky Way are distributed. The stars in the Milky Way that shine fall off in their number and brightness very rapidly from the center. But the spinning of the Milky Way suggests that there's material outside the Milky Way that's dark, that is enabling the Milky Way to keep spinning even far away uh, at the speed it does. So this has been known since the 70s. And so this is known as the dark matter problem. So you might say, well, you know, maybe there's stuff, you know, that's not shining. But it turns out that cosmologists are very confident how much normal material there is in the universe of the kind that makes up you and me and everything around us. And it isn't enough by a factor of about 10 to explain dark matter. So the idea, even though it's embarrassingly not yet proven, is that the dark matter is not the stuff that we see around us on the earth, uh, in our offices and in the countryside, but is a, a new particle uh, that doesn't interact very well uh, with everything around us. Now, at this point, people might turn off and say it sounds like fantasy. Um, but let me turn the question around now to exactly what you asked. And that is, if you assume that the universe is just made up of the stuff that we can see, then there isn't enough time since the Big Bang 
to form the galaxies and big things that we see around us today. Computer simulations show it's just not possible to produce galaxies and stars and clusters of galaxies in 13.7 billion years. Something needs to accelerate that growth. And it's the dark matter. And the reason is if the dark matter is not the kind of stuff that makes up you and me, it has a head start in the early universe in clustering itself so that when the hydrogen cloud forms for the first time, it is immediately sucked into the dark matter. And the acceleration of the structure uh, that's offered by the dark matter is crucial to explaining how everything we see around us today formed. Now, the picture holds very well and it's stood the test of time. But, <clears throat> you know, there are still major questions about this picture of dark matter. Some people believe that, you know, heaven forbid, you know, Newton's law of gravity is incorrect. Um, and uh, he'd turn over in his grave, of course. Uh, and even Einstein is wrong. Um, but I think most tests that we've done <coughs> suggest that, you know, this is not the fix that's needed. So we really need to do find, we really do need to find out what the dark matter particle is. Uh, but the astronomers can measure how much there is, they can see how it's distributed, and they conclude it's essential to explain uh, how we get to where we are today from the Big Bang. And, and you say that these early stars, uh, their characteristics were slightly different because there were different type of elements at that time. So yeah. the energy emitted by these stars was so intense that it ionized uh, the, the hydrogen. And, and, and you say that there was a time that the entire universe was ionized? Yes. So um, no sooner than the hydrogen atom formed, as the universe expands, it cools, and eventually the hydrogen atom formed about 380,000 years after the Big Bang. And then we have these dark clouds of hydrogen that are being sucked into the dark matter, uh, and eventually they collapse and we end the dark ages with the birth of galaxies. Now, the stars that form at the end of the dark ages have no heavy elements, as we discussed. And so they're very hot compared to the stars that we see in the Milky Way today. And the reason for that is these heavy elements uh, act as a blanket. Um, the, it's difficult, a little bit difficult to explain, but, you know, atoms like iron and and silicon and magnesium cover the atmosphere of stars uh, and make the radiation that escapes uh, less intense than it would be if the star was completely pristine and only contained hydrogen and helium. So these early stars are extraordinarily energetic. They're hotter than stars of the same mass to today. And so they have the energy to heat up the hydrogen in deep space and break it apart again into the two particles that make the hydrogen atom, which people may remember are the proton and the electron. And we call this ionization. It ionizes the gas. And over time, the whole of deep space, slowly but surely, uh, is ionized by these early galaxies. And it's been known since the 1960s that the hydrogen in deep space today is ionized. And yet it's been a puzzle until recently how that happened. But I think we have a pretty good picture now that this ionization of deep space is coincident with the birth of galaxies. After the first stars emerged, the galaxies followed? How, how did that progression happen? Well, we don't know in detail. Um, we don't know whether Cosmic Dawn was a dramatic, you know, light bulb switching on event, okay, or whether it was, you know, like lighting a campfire where, you know, you struggle to get the embers going and then eventually whoosh, you know. We don't know exactly the details. And, of course, that's what we hope to uncover with James Webb. Um, sure, yeah. But, but 
the whole process of reionization, we think, took about 500 million years. Now, you know, to the average person in the street, that seems like a long time. But, you know, on the scale of 13.7 billion years, you know, that's pretty quick. So um, this transition from darkness to an ionized medium, you know, uh, which we call cosmic reionization, if you want the scientific term, uh, happened pretty quickly. And what's exciting is we have the physics, we have the physical capability of understanding it now with James Webb. When I was preparing for this discussion, at this point, a question came to my mind that do we know that when the first black holes emerged in the universe? No. And there's a big puzzle. So um, listeners may have heard that in the center of our Milky Way galaxy is a monster black hole. It's about a million, more than a million times more massive than the sun. And it led to a recent, its discovery led to a recent Nobel Prize winners by two astronomers, one in Germany and one in California, uh, both of whom I know very well. Um, now, black holes are the end point. We understand black holes are the end point of massive stars. When a star, um, a very massive star, much more massive than the sun, ends its life, um, it explodes. And if it's above a certain mass, it leaves a remnant which cannot support itself and collapses into a black hole. So the black hole is a, an object uh, that becomes so dense that even light uh, cannot escape from it, and so it becomes a dark object. <clears throat> Now, most black holes from the death of stars are not much more massive than the sun. They might be, you know, five to 10 times more massive than the sun, maybe 20 times more massive than the sun. So the question everybody might wonder then is how on earth in the center of the Milky Way is there a monster black hole that's several million times the mass of the sun? You would have to coalesce millions of stars that have died like a sort of super graveyard and bring all these debris together into one gigantic monster? And the answer is there isn't enough time in the universe to do that. So what's the solution? Well, the solution might be that there is another way to make black holes rather than the death of normal massive stars that we see in the Milky Way. For example, in the period we've been talking about, like the Dark Ages, Supposing some of these gas clouds, normally the picture we've described is that they collapse, they get hotter in the middle and they ignite and they, they become galaxies or clusters of stars. But right. imagine mm -hmm. that it all happens so rapidly that they, they don't even have time to ignite nuclear fusion that makes stars shine and they just go straight into a black hole. And this, these objects have not been seen or detected. It's a hypothesis. Uh, but these are called direct collapse black holes. And the idea is they could be several hundred times the mass of the sun. So then black holes would have a kickstart. And if they merge and, you know, assemble and uh, coalesce with one another, then possibly by the time the Milky Way forms, we can get up to these spectacular masses. So it's a big puzzle. Now, can James Webb address this? James Webb can certainly detect the presence of black holes in early galaxies because the, the material that falls into the black hole, and material loves to fall into a black hole because the power of the black hole is immense. As the material falls in, It, it radiates and shines with a very different characteristic signal than ordinary starlight. And that signal can be seen by the spectrographs on James Webb. Now, so far, James Webb hasn't really yet had time to make progress in this particular area. And this is an area that I think 
is going to take a little bit of time, but it's certainly something that James Webb can cast light on. And if this question is uh, answered, and if this hypothesis is either verified or rejected, that is going to be a major breakthrough. If we can't explain where black holes come from, that's a huge problem for the subject. Hmm. Um, It would almost suggest that in the early universe, there's a process for producing what we call primordial black holes. Hmm. Um, And uh, let's just see, you know. So Hmm. this is, uh, you're absolutely right, Wasim. this is such an important topic that there are now entire conferences on this entire question of where do black holes come from. Staying with the topic of black hole, recently we saw these direct images of uh, black holes taken by a group of uh, telescopes working together. Talk to us about that image. When you saw that image, what did you feel? Is this another uh, major breakthrough and major development in observational astronomy? Technically, it's a huge breakthrough. Um, The telescope is not a single telescope. It's called the Event Horizon Telescope. It is a network of radio telescopes using, as George Ellery Hale might have imagined, the entire size of the Earth as the collecting area and the, you know, the aperture that we would use. So it's a, it's a, connecting all these radio telescopes was a huge technical challenge, synchronizing their observations. Uh, They have looked at two um, objects. They looked at the Milky Way black hole, and they looked at an even more massive black hole in one of the nearest galaxies in in the constellation of Virgo, which we already knew has a black hole that's nearly a thousand times more massive than the one in the Milky Way. So they started with the easier, more massive one, uh, and they produced a spectacular image of a ring of light around the black hole. So there's a ring of light that's surrounding darkness. So you don't see the black hole itself. If you can cast your mind back to our conversation about gravitational lensing, a black hole is is a brilliant gravitational lens because light rays are bent around the black hole by the sheer uh, gravitational power of this concentration of mass. Let me explain. Gravitational lensing, the strength of the gravitational lensing depends not just on the total mass of the lens, but also how concentrated it is. And so this black hole is is a brilliant uh, example of gravitational lensing. So they showed this beautiful image uh, about two, two or three years ago of this. And then very recently, uh, they showed uh, the image of the same phenomenon uh, in the Milky Way. So this is a way of um, demonstrating unequivocally that there's a black hole. Um, It's, of course, inspirational to see a picture of where the black hole is by inference of this Mm -hmm. ring. Um, And, of course, in principle, with more facilities, uh, the technique can be applied to other systems uh, elsewhere where we think black holes are present. Black holes are more or less seen in the centers of all galaxies. Uh, so this technique is, uh, is, is really exciting. But I would say above all, I mean, it hasn't changed our opinion that the black holes are present, but it's a fantastic technical achievement. And one aspect of uh, astronomy is that uh, astronomers, when they are observing the night sky, they are traveling in time, they are looking mm. in the past. Mm. Uh, no, it's a, a well understood concept, but right. still you as a practitioner, as a, as, a, as a practical observational astronomer, so every time you have a better telescope, every time you go a little bit back in time, uh, I'm sure the feelings must be exciting. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's inspirational. Um, you know, the idea, even when I was a post-doctoral post, uh, student, you know, I was already finding galaxies that were shining before the solar system formed. And, uh, you know, I would wake up in the middle of the night and think, you know, I've seen light that has been traveling the whole time, you know, the dinosaurs were there and were extinct 
you know, and the Roman Empire and all of this. And the whole time, these light rays have been coming to us. And then just to make a joke, at the end of the exposure, I would close the shutter and I felt terribly sorry for all these photons that had come all this way to hit a blank a blank steel plate. You know? <laughs> um, it's as if we should be observing these photons all the time because they've been struggling their way uh, from the distant universe for so long. But yeah, it's, mm. uh, it's an amazing concept. And, you know, if you can't get your head around it, I'm sure many people can appreciate going into a quarry or a mountain range and seeing the layers of rocks or even tree rings, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a, you know, when a tree is felled, you see the tree rings and you can see the history of the growth of the trees. So the concept is not that difficult to put your mind around. Light has been traveling all this way. We have an ability to time slice the universe and, of course, we don't live long, long enough to see the evolution of an individual object. Um, so the trick is to connect the dots and come up with a coherent picture of how it all evolved. So uh, when we are looking at these distant objects, we are conducting research. We are trying to understand that how the universe formed and evolved and everything. But then there is another branch also. I'm sure... Even if you are not directly interested in this question, you must have close colleagues who might be thinking about this question that, is there life out there? Are we alone in, in, in the universe? Did you ever spend some time thinking about or looking into this question? Well, of course. Um, nobody, <laughs> nobody who looks at the night sky and contemplates simultaneously the richness of the planet that we live on you know, the animals that we see, the plants, the diversity, uh, you know, are we a special case? Now, I may disappoint on this answer because my wife is a biologist, as is my son. And um, very recently, astronomers have got interested over the last 20 years or so in learning from biologists how life might have evolved and formed. And um, up until that point, the argument was largely one of statistics. You know, the solar system has many planets. We now find we've found 5,000 planets around other stars. There are, you know, a thousand billion stars in the Milky Well, you know, 10 billion stars in the Milky Way. And there are an equal number of galaxies. It's, it's, inconceivable that we would be special given all these planets all these stars it life must be ubiquitous but the route from sing you know singular cellular life or bacterial life to multicellular life is quite a big leap and um the question when you look at it from the biological point of view it almost seems by chance uh, and, uh, you know, could not, you know, could even be conceivable horror, though it may be to think about it, that it's an accident. And um, coupled to this is, of course, the fact that for 100 years we've been signaling our presence uh, in the Milky Way uh, and all the attempts to, you know, get a rece reception um, at least, um, you know, have, uh, have failed. Now, the usual argument against this is that there's a narrow window in any civilization uh, where it is uh, willing to cooperate with another civilization. And I accept all these arguments. Uh, but, you know, when I put it, put everything down on the table, um, I feel the astronomer's simple view that there's so much stuff in the universe isn't the most important criteria. The real important criteria is to listen to the biologists who are trying very hard to explain the process by which uh, life replicates at the multicellular level. And so mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I, I'm more skeptical than many people. Now, you mentioned my colleagues. I think I am in the minority. I think most astronomers can't imagine a Milky Way where there's just us. You know, they think it's, and, you know, many people 
hate the idea because it's almost arrogant. Um, but uh, that's my answer to your question. Disappointing, probably. <laughs> <laughs> my my second last question is: This is a philosophical follow up question, uh, Richard. One day, if we figure out that we have scanned the entire universe and we now know for sure that there is no other life out there, or one day we suddenly figure out that there is life out there, there are planets where there are you know other life forms. My question is, which finding will will surprise you most if we find that we are alone in the universe? And that would be a surprising thing for you, or if we find out that life is out there on many places. Well, I think I'd be shocked if we we're alone, despite what I said earlier. You know, even though I can't contemplate, uh, you know, the steps to making life, and, and maybe that's just our ignorance. So many people may disagree with me and say, "Well, you know, we just don't understand how life forms, so it's just a question of." a few centuries of research and then we'll figure out you know that life is fairly straightforward and then it should be everywhere so but right now today i would agree with you that if we you know in the far future if after all this searching we find that we are alone it would be it would be pretty amazing um and uh, almost depressing um, yes yeah you know i mean <laughs> you know people have got very excited about the prospects of communication with animals and, you know, and it's, or even ancient civilizations, you know, there are people that have been protected from civilization. And I often feel that we could learn a lot from talking to them about their views of the universe, even though they don't have telescopes. But um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, if we found that there's nobody else to talk to, but ourselves, uh, it would be kind of depressing. <laughs> Richard, we are discussing your book, When Galaxies Were Born, The Quest for Cosmic Dawn. Uh, we have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in this book. Obviously, there is much more in this book. There are fascinating diagrams. There are many pictures. A lot of stuff is there. However, is there anything else that you think we should touch upon before we close this discussion? No, I think so. I think if people want to understand the excitement of modern astronomy. They want to understand what a professional astronomer's life is like. And I think I've lived at a very, very uh, key time in the development of the subject. You know, we've seen modern detectors that we have in our iPhone cameras. We've seen the capability of bigger telescopes dwarfing anything that happened before. As you said, we've seen the ability to correct for the blurring of the Earth's atmosphere. We've launched telescopes into space. You know, it's been an amazing 50 years and uh, you can read all about it in my book. Professor Richard Alice, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Thank you. Thank you and goodbye.